October is a big month in the Schaffner household. On the 1st of October, we actually had a chance to celebrate that I have actually been here in ministry for seven years at First Christian Church. It's a big win. It's exciting for the next seven years for sure. But an even bigger celebration for us is the fact that this week, Wednesday, I will be celebrating 25 years of wedded bliss, right? 25 years of marriage with Miss Christy Henry. That is one of the things that I I wondered how it was going to be or what it was going to look like when I got here. And now, frankly, I am here. I remember the the time I sat down to ask her mother and father for her hand in marriage. We came and we sat at a table, actually uh, at the Cracker Barrel, right off of Cunningham Avenue in Urbana, Illinois. We sat there and I remember we played those little table games things. I think I did the little triangle and got it down to just a couple of pins and felt like I had my my A game going for me. And so I remember looking at these parents across the table and recognizing that the truth of the matter is, I really wasn't sure what I had to offer. I mean, her mom was a saint. She actually served at a children's home for some boys who didn't have family. My father-in-law, a great man of integrity, well, he, he's an outstanding math teacher, a man known in his community and well-respected. And here was this guy, me, a kid who was madly in love with their daughter, but really didn't have a great academic tradition in, in college and really wasn't heading anywhere uh, great, maybe spent a little more time on academic probation and actually had one semester on social probation. And I thought, what do I bring to this table? You know, when you're, you're thinking about relationship and what it means to engage in a relationship, you have to assess, what do I bring to this table? Well, I'm grateful that they said, yes, I could ask for Christie's hand in marriage. And I'm grateful that we dated for three years and have been married for 25. But the truth of the matter is, I really didn't have much to bring to the table, but me. Well, let me say welcome. Welcome to the Upside Down Week 2. It's a message series about some blessings, the discussion of what it means to truly live a life of happiness because Jesus is in the center of our relationship. We're going to unpack uh, just a real simple beatitude, a blessing or state of happiness because of our relationship with God. And when we think about our relationship with God, we have to admit that God is the one that defines our relationship. Like it or not, as God, he gets to do that, right? When we look back on the people of God, the nation of Israel, God was clear throughout scripture when he spoke to Moses, leading the Israelites out of Egypt, delivering them from the hands of Pharaoh and slavery. God brought them together on a mountain to begin to articulate what this new life of freedom would look like and how their relationship would be defined. So Moses climbed to the top of the mountain and God spoke God redefined their relationship as the nation of Israel, how they would be known. And now they knew from their history, though, that in Abraham, one of the descendants 
Initially, God said this, that in Genesis 2, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. The nation of Israel realized that as the people of God, they would be blessed, they would be happy and they would be the kind of people that would bring blessing or God's happiness to the world. But there they stood again out of slavery, on top of another mountain, and God begins to define their relationship when he says this in Exodus. You shall have no other gods before me. God begins to ask of the nation of Israel to make their relationship exclusive. He had requested that from the beginning of creation, but after a series of rebellions and wandering and enslavement, they're come together again as the people of God, and he is reminding them, this is just between us. The life of blessing, the life of happiness is found in the exclusivity of our relationship. There is no other God to have at the center of our lives. But now we find ourselves gathered on another mountainside. This time, Jesus, God in flesh, has gathered the people of Israel again, and he's beginning to speak to those who will listen. And he has declared that the kingdom of heaven is now here. We should repent and change our lives, change our allegiance, and lean in to him. And here's what he says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs... Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus begins with this imagery of the poor. It's interesting to note that the poor can often be, be, also be described as the beggar. And whether it's in our day or in Jesus' day, when we think of the poor, we think of, of people who are living in constant distress or crisis in their lives. That... They, they may be experiencing some sort of dis, uh, economic disadvantage and they can't seem to, to, to care for their lives on the daily basis. And so they're in need of charity. They're in need of constant support. And Jesus starts with this image, the poor. Blessed are the poor. When we think of the poor, um, maybe we think of somebody who just has no money. Maybe they're broke. Um, people who uh, maybe have chosen to have little money and live in meager means. Others who have maybe lost their income due to calamity or other crisis. But Jesus starts with this idea. Blessed are the poor. Many who are hearing this message from Jesus, they're the kind of people that have been overlooked or maybe even oppressed. They have endured hardship. They've endured loss. The crowds are sensing maybe their own depression, inadequacy, and their faint-heartedness. They, they seem to lean in, as Jesus says, blessed are the poor, as if to say, that's me. I'm in need. But there's a bit of irony that he starts here. Why? Because when we think about blessing, we do not think of it in the terms of poverty. Jesus starts with this upside down statement that the truly happy are poor. 
But is the emphasis really on our financial well-being? One scholar makes this comment I thought was interesting. He says, though poverty is neither a blessing nor a guarantee of spiritual rewards, it can be turned into an advantage if it fosters humility before God. Mother Teresa was known as a nun who served some of the most disadvantaged, impoverished people in Calcutta, India. She served the poorest of the poor. Mother Teresa was invited to America, and so she went on this tour, and she actually went to go visit the homes of the elderly. She was asked, what are your impressions? And here's what she said. I thought that the people of Calcutta were poor, but the people in America are much poorer than the people in India. They do not have material things in India, but they have a family, a sense of community, and the people care for each other. Here in America, there is a poverty of caring. She goes on to say this. Listen to this quote. I find the rich much poor. Sometimes they are more lonely inside. They are never satisfied. They always need something more. I don't say all of them are like that. Everybody's not the same. I find that poverty is hard to remove. The hunger for love is much more difficult to remove than the hunger for bread. I think Mother Teresa is on to something. Maybe this has little to do with how much money we have in our wallet, but maybe it has to do with the state of our heart and our mind. I mean, the phrase that Jesus says is blessed or blessed are the poor in spirit. The phrase is poor in spirit. It's one thought. It's not blessed are the poor in God's spirit. But those who are poor in their own spirit. Yes, it's true that without God, our spirit is poor. But he is speaking to a crowd who is yet to understand that what they need is God. And is speaking to their condition, their heart, their, their standard. And says, you are blessed for being poor in spirit. And this may push against you kind of awkwardly. But Jesus is calling out. That the people of God, the people who follow after Jesus, are in need. They are in want. They are hungry for something different. Their pursuit of themselves, their own comforts, and their own happiness, it has been lived out in vain. And they long for a freedom, a freedom that comes from knowing God that will be found in the Messiah, in Jesus, God himself. And Jesus is the one who has the ability to address the deepest needs of humanity. We don't just need help. We need a savior. When I read scripture, I am reminded of, of what life is like without Jesus, right? I mean, in Isaiah, there's the reference that all of us have become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. In Romans chapter three, I'm reminded that there's no one righteous. No, not one. <laughs> Later in verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are sinful, 
broken, hurting, and self-centered people who live our lives at every turn for ourselves. And we recognize that the pursuit of self ends with myself. It's like a dog that's chasing after its tail. And so it brings me back to this table. What do I bring to this table? In my relationship with God, and I sit down at the table with God, what do I bring to this table? God is everything. God has everything. God brings it all to the table. I come wanting. I come in need. I bring absolutely nothing to this table but me. But me. And D.A. Carson writes this to be poor in spirit is not to lack courage, but to acknowledge spiritual bankruptcy. It confesses one's unworthiness before God and utter dependence on Him. Only at this table, the table with God, can I have what I need a truly blessed life. Let me say it this way. We are spiritual beggars in need of the grace of Jesus. We are. Spiritual beggars in need of the grace of Jesus. We're the kind of spiritual beggars that need to feed on the never-ending grace of Jesus, his favor, his love, his worthiness in our lives. So Jesus makes this statement, happy are the beggars. (laughs) This seems oxymoronic, doesn't it? Happy are the beggars? I mean, come on, are you for real? Is this really what he's saying? Well, what if I said it this way, okay? What if I said, happy are the breathing? You'd be like, well, of course. Yeah, without breathing, I can't live. But come on, come on, come on. Somebody's got to make these lungs fill up. Somebody's got to think about the breathing and I go, okay, okay. So do you really sit there and in the midst of your day think, breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in, breathe out. The reality is for us, we never think about breathing because God has gifted that to us. God has created it uniquely in every living being to breathe. And so when you think about coming to this table and the need that we have for God, whether it's in the everyday realities of breathing and living or working a job or living out a relationship, let alone to think about our faith and our salvation, our eternity secured in the death and burial resurrection of Jesus. When we look at this table, what do we have to bring? Nothing but ourselves. So Jesus says, happy are the spiritual beggars. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean? Theirs is the kingdom? Theirs is the kingdom? What is that? The reality is, Jesus is saying, those who are in need... Those who are wanting and hurting and desperate and leaning in for God to be able to work in their life. 
are in the exact posture to live out the kingdom of heaven. They're already ready to receive what they cannot create on their own. They're already to be used by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords because they realize all they have and all that they are is from God. So use me. See, the kingdom of heaven is not based on your ethnic heritage, their earnings for your hard work, your might or power, the influence of your voice, the name on the back of your jersey, the wealth in your portfolio. The kingdom of God is for those who are messed up, jacked up, cracked up, foolish failures who realize that they are in the desperate need of Jesus in their lives, like the very air that we breathe. Think about this. Until we realize we bring nothing we cannot enjoy everything, everything Jesus has to offer. Until we realize we bring nothing to this table, we can't enjoy everything that Jesus has to offer. There's a sense that once we recognize that we're nothing, then we begin to recognize that everything God can do for us, work in us, work through us, is in Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is ours. And God wants nothing of our own efforts to save us, but only that we offer ourselves in obedience. Here's what Jesus is trying to say. Here's a bit of a retranslation for this verse. Happy are the spiritual beggars, for they have a seat at God's table. Happy are the ones who are hungry, who are desperate, who are longing who are broken, who are failed, who have messed up, who feel unworthy, who, who recognize they can't do anything beyond what God has already done and can do in them. You know, the Apostle Paul is one of the great testimonies throughout Scripture. He's a man who grew up believing and fearing God and in his zeal for God actually began to rebel against God. And Jesus comes, he lives a, a blameless life, he dies his death on the cross for humanity. He pays for our sins. He, he provides forgiveness of our sins, provides life everlasting by his death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection. He begins to show up, Jesus that is, to the world after he's resurrected from the dead. People are inspired. They're verified that what he taught and who he is is true. And movements of people begin to follow in the way after Jesus. And Paul, a man who is fearing God, begins to be skewed in his thinking, skewed in his actions, and begins to literally persecute, stand against the person of Jesus and his followers. He begins to persecute them. He begins to arrest them. He begins to throw them in jail, even kill them. And Paul later has this awakening before God. This desperate moment where he realizes that everything he's been living in life, all the success that he's been having in his life has been in vain. And he has literally been rebelling against God as opposed to living out his faith for God. And God takes that broken failure of a life and resets it. In all of his depravity, in all of his failure, 
in all of his shame, God's grace meets him there and sets him on a new course and invites him back into the mission of God. Paul goes on to become one of the great faithful followers of Jesus, literally becoming a man who begins to plant churches, raise up Christians, and to teach this following after God. He writes a letter to a church called Ephesus. And in Ephesians chapter 2, he begins to describe this relationship with God. And he begins by reshaping the identity of those of us who have given our life to Christ. When he says, you know, we were dead in our sins. We were living in vain against God. We were living for our own desires, our own wants. But God in his great love, God in his great love has mercy on us has saved us. And then he begins to describe the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus by saying that Jesus now bears our punishment for our sin. And by overcoming sin, by conquering death, he now sits at the right hand of God so that we might know God's love. Here's what he says. Here's what he says in verse 8. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not for your, from yourselves, meaning not by your own hand. It's a gift, a gift from God. Not by works, so that none of us can boast about it for ourselves. For we are God's handiwork. That word is also tra translated masterpiece. For we are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works for which God prepared in advance for us to do. So Paul says, hey, here's the deal. We are saved by God's grace. You brought nothing to the table. Uh, what you had was your brokenness, your sin, your envy, your vain, all, all of those things. That's what you had. But when you came to this table, it was God's grace extended to you. And because of God's grace, we now have salvation provided through Jesus who lived a pure and blameless life. This is the message of the gospel. This is the good news that God gave his life on our behalf. He took our punishment, our sin upon himself, and he conquered both sin and death in that weekend. But now we, we live by faith, meaning we place the full weight of our life, our mistakes, our failures, our sins, our habits, our guilt, our shame, our blame, everything. We place all of it into the hands of Jesus. That believing in the death, burial, and resurrection, we place all of our trust into the hands of Jesus and live differently because of it. And what does this do? It begins to paint on the canvas of our life the masterpiece of God's reconciliation and God's restoration and God's salvation being lived out in us every day as we live out the mission and purpose of God by serving, loving, and caring the way Jesus cares for the people and the needs of this world. But let's not be mistaken. It's because of what God brought to the table not by anything that we did. 
You know, one of the beautiful things I, I love about now uh, being a homeowner, having a family, uh, and, and getting to know people is the time that people invite you over to their house. I, I really enjoy it. I, I, don't, I don't mind cooking. I'm actually a decent cook. I, I don't mind bringing desserts. I, I love going over to people's houses that I know and, 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 and pitching in and doing meals together. But isn't it kind of nice sometimes when you get invited over to somebody's house and they just say, yes, the question, what do I need to bring, right? What do I need to bring? And oftentimes people say, oh, don't worry about, bring, about bringing anything, just come. Well, should I bring a side dish? Should I, should I bring a dessert? Should I, should, I, should I bring a gift? What should I bring? I mean, because it's, it's kind of uh, assumed or customary that uh, we don't want to be freeloaders, right? When somebody invites us over, but we don't want to just come over and take for ourselves. We, we want to contribute in some way. We want to show that we care as well. Here's what I love though. If I'm honest, when people invite me over, I love it when people say, don't bring anything. I mean, I don't have to worry about what to pick. I don't have to worry about going uh, to the grocery store and buying cookies and getting that look like, oh, you didn't have time to make anything, right? It's nice. It's nice just to get the invite and be able to say, oh, don't bring anything. Just come. It's nice to be able to step into a house where you know that somebody's prepared to care for you. It's nice to build a relationship with somebody and know that they are just wanting you to be there and not worry about anything else. That's what kind of happens in our relationship with God, right? Jesus sets a table for us at God's table and he says, come, I've already paid the price. I've already given my life. I, I, your, the forgiveness of your sins, all of that's taken care of. I, I've, I've provided everything that you need. Just, just come. But what do I need to bring? I mean, I mean God, I, 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 I've got a good family name. I, I'm a hard worker. You know, I, I've got some money. I can, I can pick up the tip. God, God, what? Don't do anything. Just come. And so when we sit at this table and we're reminded about those who are truly happy, those who are blessed, the poor in spirit, the ones who are desperate for God, recognizing that we have nothing to give but everything to gain. Jesus says, just come. And the question is this, what do I bring to this table? The answer is absolutely nothing but you. Let's move to our time of response. When I look at my dinner table in the evening, it looks pretty similar most nights. Uh, Sometimes my oldest son might have soccer. Sometimes my daughter might have cheerleading. For sure, my three-year-old is going to say, ooh, about something that I put on her table. Um, But we try to gather as a family every single night. And I'm sure that your tables look pretty similar. I'm sure that whoever is around it, you're just hoping that they get full, whether that's love or food or laughter. And sometimes it's sparse. But I think we all have the same goal, that whoever sits with us is full. We want them to feel God's love. We want them to feel our love. And so when Danny asked the question today, you know, what are you bringing to the table? I think, oh, I gotta bring something to God's table. 
I mean, surely he'll be impressed with the time that I spent with him this week, or surely he'll be impressed with how I listened. But in reality, he doesn't want me to bring anything. He just wants Aaron to show up. He just wants me to be quiet and be still and listen. And sometimes that's the hardest thing for me to do, just to quiet and let God feed me and let God give me everything that I need. But guys, that's what he wants. He said, don't bring anything to the table. Just come empty-handed. When we take communion, I want you to remember, it happened around God's table. It happened at the Lord's table. And so I would encourage you today to come empty-handed, to ask him, what do you want to give me? What do you want to fill me with today? Because I'm ready. Come hungry. And so it says that Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. He said, take and eat. And they did. And in the same breath, he held up the cup and he said, take and drink. And do this in remembrance of me. Will you continue to worship with us this morning?